Hi, friends. Thank you so much for joining. So glad you're all here today. Thank you so much for being here. We're very much looking forward to learning with you who are in the Zoom, those of you who are on the Facebook Live, and those of you who are on the recording recording around the world for this very, very important topic um, of ransoming captives, the imperative and complexity of ransoming captives. Uh, with a great scholar and a friend of ours and a partner, Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy, who is the Rosh Beit Midrash at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem, an open co-ed and non-denominational Jewish learning community where students encounter and grapple with classic texts and traditions of Judaism while exploring their relevance to today's most pressing issues. Mish is engaged with a variety of social campaigns, especially in the areas of women's and human rights and peace. Originally from Washington, D.C., Mish has a B.A. from Brandeis and a Ph.D. from New York University. Her dissertation explored the courageous manner in which the rabbis of the Talmud created a new criminal punishment system. Mish was among the first cohort of Orthodox female rabbis ordained in June 2015. She completed her studies at Beit Midrash Har-El and received ordination from Rabbi Herzl Hefter and Rabbi Daniel Sperber. Mish also serves as Director of Admissions and of Social Engagement and writes an online course for the ICJW, International Council of Jewish Women. She has a PhD in Talmud from NYU. Um, this, of course, is very sensitive times, very scary times, um, and yet we maintain hope uh, in the resilience, resilience of Am Yisrael, in uh, the closeness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and the way we do that is by continuing to learn together and come together to process and learn. Rabbi Dr. Misham Kasoy, it's an honor to have you back. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Rav Shmuley, Eddie, and everybody um, who's joined today. Thank you for your time. I'm, uh, uh, I'm teaching something that's very personal to my heart right now um, because uh, my dear friend who I went on Nativ and Brandeis, and then uh, spent, we've grown up together. Our sons went to elementary school, high school, and then joined the army together. Um, the Goldberg-Poland family, Rachel Goldberg um, and her son, Hirsch, uh, were taken captive. So I would like to dedicate the, um, I'd like to dedicate the lear this learning to the speedy and safe return of Hirsch Ben Peril Hanna, the Yonatan Shimshon uh, Goldberg-Poland. And I'd like to uh, and um, and invite everybody to participate. It's uh, you might see on my shirt that I have a 95 um, taped to my uh, to my chest. The the ask that Rachel's baking uh, of the world is that we should all feel uncomfortable as she feels uncomfortable uh, by wearing uh, the number, especially on the hundredth day, which is unfortunately coming up on Sunday. Um, so. That's what I'm thinking about. And I'm also aware of this is an issue that I've been wrestling with for a long time, and it's actually incredibly complex. Um, and this uh, and this is one of those moments where I've actually come to understand uh, through the learning of Torah. I love to learn Torah. Um, and this is another one of those times that it surprises me again and again, just how clarifying the process of going through our, our sources can be in helping to um, to clarify our values and understand, you know, to understand why we think the way we do and how to think it more deeply. So I'd like, if we could, to start with uh, um, with 
two pithy quotes that I like to put in italics at the top of my source sheet. Um, and those of you who have the source sheet uh, can follow along. Those of you who don't have the source sheet, if you're listening to it later, you can obtain it by writing to me about this or any other topic, Mish, M-E-E-S-H at pardace.org.il. Um, and I'm sure that'll be in the in the episode notes if you're listening to this on the podcast. Um, but the... Uh, um, Hold on a second. The uh, uh, sorry. Um, I'm interested. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> the top of the source sheet says two things, two sources. One from Yavamut seventy nine, which says there are three signs. Um, of this nation, what characterizes the Jewish people, that they are Rachmanim by Shanim Gomle Chasidim. You have to be, if you want to be Jewish, you have to be merciful, humble, bashful, and uh, and somebody who does acts of kindness. And if you're not one of those, if you don't have those three signs, it's a sign that you're not meant to be Jewish. Um, that's what makes us Jewish. So at the very core of our identity is compassion and acts of kindness. Um, and that is uh, absolutely essential to the way we relate to the world as we're going forward. And the other thing is, as said in the Kuzari, Rabbi Yehuda Levi in the Middle Ages, the relationship of the individual to the community is like the limb to the rest of the body. Should should the arm, if bloodletting is required, refuse its blood, the whole body would, would suffer, including the arm. It's the duty of the individual to suffer hardships, even death for the well-being of the nation. That is to say that we sort of think of ourselves as one body politic. We are a collective, the Jewish people. And when a, um, when one of us is suffering, all of us are suffering. And what we give up, because we're part of a whole, um, we're giving up for the good of the entire whole, which is actually for our own good. Um, of course, that has to do, that's true beyond the Jewish people, but it's something that especially characterizes the Jewish people in this notion of kol Yisrael a raven zebazeh. All of the Jewish people are interdependent on one another. Uh, it's a very high bar of solidarity. Uh, and I think that we're feeling this in such a powerful in such a powerful way right now. It so happens today is uh, January 9th. Um, they've announced the death of uh, nine soldiers today, um, one of whom is the nephew of one of my dear friends and faculty members. And many of my and I would be right now at that funeral, probably if I were, hadn't already committed to teaching here. Um, and uh, and we're feeling that loss is the loss for all of us. Uh, it's not, of course, it's the loss for that family, but it's also a loss for all of us. So uh we feel that also with with Hirsch having been taken captive. Um, and I think when you start with those two things, this assumption that the Jewish people are compassionate and doers of kindness, you and you start with the, the understanding that we are all one body, we're all um, with a common destiny, then we then we approach that that underlines underlies everything we do as we approach this issue. That being said, uh, the Rambam in Hilchot Matzanot Levionim in the eight chapter eight number ten says, "Redeeming captives takes precedence over providing for the 
for and clothing them. And there's no mitzvah greater than redeeming the captives, as the captive is included in the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and stands in mortal danger. So this is that redeeming the captive is a huge mitzvah. And the one who ignores um, redeeming this person transgresses, do not close your heart to the, do not close your heart or your hand and transgresses, do not stand on the blood of your fellow and transgresses, do not um, let him be under the yoke before, um, let, do not let him be oppressed before you. Don't let that person be, unfellow uh, you be oppressed before you. That's three negative commandments. Okay. Commit negative commandments are we are more careful not to disobey God than we are even to obey God. But just in case you were wondering, there's also three positive commandments. Um, open your hand to, to the poor person, um, that your siblings should live with you, and that you should love your neighbor as yourself. So there, so you've got six mitzvahs that you're doing when you redeem the captive, three positive mitzvahs and three negative mitzvahs. Um, save those who are going to die and many similar things. And there's no greater mitzvah than redeeming the captive. Um, the, uh, the assumption here has really been brought down to uh, reality in new ways as we've been experiencing this particular hostage um, incident um, with 240 people having been taken captive. Um, and as the first hundred Baruch Hashem came home to see just how close they were to death at every moment and how much they really were. Um, it's it, it's every moment uh, is absolutely critical. And to imagine that people have been living for 95 days under these conditions uh, is literally terrifying. Um, so, uh, that, so this idea that is the that is the um the uh the t-shirt that's very popular in israel right now there's no there's there's nothing as big as redeeming the captives um and we can really understand uh how important it is time is of the essence and how this is part of uh, our basic interpersonal covenant with people, the mitzvah of tzedakah, the mitzvah of saving lives, and the mitzvah of uh, basic way we interact with each other, both in the positive way and the negative way. Um, there are so many in these six mitzvot, there are so many moral dilemmas that are dependent on these mitzvot. It could be this, the sex trade, the obligation to do kidney transplant, the refugee crisis, our relationship to beggars, all of those things build on these six commandments. And they're all wrapped up in this particular mitzvah of redeeming the captives. Um, and so in that sense, it's not such a great surprise that in, it's in the source two, where it says, shvuim, that the redeeming of captives takes precedence over providing for the poor and clothing them. There's no mitzvah greater than redeeming the captives. This is, uh, um, this is in the Shulchan Aruch already in the 16th, 17th centuries. That the um, that redeeming captive takes precedence over all other mitzvot, and there's no greater mitzvah. And therefore, you could actually redirect money that you've already collected for whatever purpose it is, um, for scholarships, for building a shul even. Um, you can redirect it and use it for this without asking. Of course, this is something you don't don't try this with American tax authorities. But we understand that uh that this mitzvah is so big that we can assume that anyone who gave mitzvah, gave tzedakah for any any other purpose will have no choice but to consent to making sure to giving it uh to giving that money uh to be used for pidyon shvuim.
uh, and it is permitted to sell it. So you can even sell the uh, the ingredient, the the raw materials, the wood and the stones designated for building a synagogue. Um, um, and you can use it to redeem a captive. So all of that, um, I think it's important to sort of understand the original context. What's going on that we are um, that we need money, right? Obviously, the the idea of pidyon shvuim, redeeming of the captives, has implicit in it a notion of, of finances, of money, and the money is really because because that was the we were we're imagining a time of war, uh, and remember that the land of Israel is positioned very inconveniently um, between. Asia and Europe and Africa and in the crossroads. And so any world war that was taking place, and there were so many world wars, uh, had Israel caught in the crossfire, if you will, and people were constantly uh, being taken as slaves and sold somewhere else. And so the, the assumption is really, when we talk about redeeming captives, the original understanding of redeeming captives was that someone, that people had been taken as slaves and were being sold on the slave market. And we can understand that being sold on the slave market um, means that you won't be able to, you'll lose your identity. Um, you won't be treated with uh, with the dignity that is needed and certainly won't be doing Torah and mitzvot, keeping your Jewish ways and having the liberty to, to uphold your identity and build your family in the ways you'd like to. And so therefore, there's a, there's an assertion here, a commandment that wherever we are in the world, and this is this happened so much in Jewish history, that a Jew would be taken captive in the land of Israel and they would find themselves being sold, whether it be in Europe or in Egypt um, or in uh, or in Iraq, in, ba in, Bab in Babylon, um, they would find themselves on the slave trade in the on the being sold as slaves and other Jews would would be commanded to come and redeem them and uh who can imagine something you know more basic than doing that as a way of taking care of your fellow Jew um and, and as soon as it, and again we understand ourselves as taking care of our collective identity um and preserving the freedom of of uh, of one another, and this is something that came up all the time in the ancient world. And so, in that sense, it's not surprising that we get to the third source. Uh, although the third source, to me, is such a shock. The source, the 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 Mishnah, which is a second century Hanaitic um, text, right? The most basic Jewish oral law says you can't redeem captives for more than they're worth for the sake of tikkun alam okay so it's just totally nuts to imagine what the heck does it mean more than they are worth how can there be any end to what a human being is worth but i've told you what the context is right the 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 context is the slave trade, and we can imagine what's happening on the slave trade. You can't overpay for the Jews because of tikkun olam. And uh, wow, it makes me nuts because tikkun olam to repair the world. That is when you, if you had, if when I ask my students, how do you say, uh, I 
I teach or I run an institution that is for Jews who want to come and learn uh, Torah in an immersive way for you can come, of course, for three weeks or for five weeks in the summer and or a month in the fall or in the winter. And please do that. But but most of my my focus is on students who come for nine months or for 10 months or for two years or for three years and really immerse themselves in building skills to read these texts for themselves. Um, and if you wake them up in the middle of the night and you say, how do you say social justice in Hebrew? They will say tikkun olam. There's nothing more basic for justice, doing the right thing in the world is tikkun olam. And here we're being told, don't redeem the captives for more than for more than they're worth for the sake of the good of the world. That's so it seems absolutely nuts. Um, and the uh, and yet we a little bit understand where it could come. So on the one hand, we're totally shocked. And on the other hand, we can understand where it's coming from. Where is it coming from? It's coming from what happens is the more you want something, the higher the price is, everything is built on supply and demand. So what would happen is you would coming through uh, in war, the crusaders will take all sorts of captives and start selling them when they get to uh, when they get to Africa or when they get back to Europe. But they'll sell they'll try to sell the Jews for more because they understand that there's a that there's a market for Jews because other Jews are willing to buy them and they're willing to pay top dollar. And the minute you're willing to pay top dollar, then you're being asked to pay top to pay top dollar. And so it was considered against it's actually against jewish law to pay top dollar for a captive more than they're worth and it seems so outrageous to to even think about what does it mean more than they're worth how can you say that about a human being for the sake of tikkun olam so it's no surprise that the gemara right away digs into this uh the gemara in the fourth fifth in the fifth sixth century let's say asks the question what what do you mean? What they asked in the Beit Midrash, they asked a question. What is what what can you explain why tikkun olam? Why this is considered tikkun olam? It could it's got to be for one of two reasons. Either it's mishum duchta de tiborahu. Is it because um, the it presses the community? And as Rashi says here. Um, Oh, I see. I didn't translate, Rashi. I'm sorry. Is it um, is it because you shouldn't? The, the Rashi says there's no need, or you shouldn't um, impoverish the community and bring them to be to extreme need to save a few individuals. Um, is it because this is too much of a burden on our budget, or perhaps um, it's so that they won't? So because it creates an incentive that the minute you have, um, the minute there's a market, then the price goes up. And when we redeem these captives for more than it's worth, then we'll have to pay even more the second time. So these are two core reasons why you shouldn't pay extra, uh, pay too much when redeeming a captive, either because it's not fair to ask the community to uh, to be impoverished, to have an undue burden, to save just a few people, or um, it's because it actually drives the market and causes the price of captives to go up. So this, it's hard to imagine before we can 
continuing the Gemara, I just want to take a moment to pause and feel how how central this Jewish text is to so many moral uh, choices that we make in the world in general, especially governments and especially budgets. When we're sort of thinking, this is it. This is a core text. When you're thinking about healthcare, if we're talking about Duchte de Tzibora, being careful to impoverish the entire community for the needs of a few, then you might say we shouldn't spend too much on really expensive drugs uh, for that will save a few people uh, from cancer. Instead, we, it'd be better to pro provide preventative care, free dental care to everyone in the world, to, to everyone in the country. And a few people will die, but we'll be able to hold, we'll be able to avoid being impoverished. And that's one view of social justice that the, that the Gemara is entertaining here. And the other is the question of, uh, which is obviously really, well, both of them actually are relevant to our current time, but this one we understand intuitively is especially important, is the way that paying a high price for a captive drives up the price in the future. Uh, and anyone who's been following the, the history of Israel has an understanding of just how extreme this has become. The first of the big uh, ca uh, captive rent, uh, prisoner exchange, I want to say prisoner because it's really the redeeming of our captives was when we redeemed three Israelis, it's called Iskat Jabril, the Jabril deal um, that was in the 80s where we redeemed for uh, 1,200 uh, people, um, Palestinian prisoners were redeemed from various countries, but were, were redeemed, uh, were traded for three soldiers who had been taken captive. Um, and that was such an exorbitant price and already just began a, a, a lot of debate. And again, you may you, you may remember, uh, I think it was in 2006 that we had um, the Gilad Shalit deal in which for that one soldier and two uh, soldiers' bodies, um, we gave 1,157 um, Captives, including Yechia Sinwar um, and many other people who have killed um, hundreds and even thousands of people um, in this recent war. So, um, so we paid such a high price for uh, for a single individual in 2006, and that has, of course is standing behind Sinwar's desire to take these 200 captives thinking, what can I do? Um, and uh, what what kind of high price can he receive? And that is the, uh, we can see why it's so kind of, why the Mishnah would make the statement, don't do it. Don't, would set down the halakha. You may not pay such a high price because it creates an incentive and as it did to take 240 people captive uh, and to abuse them in such inhuman ways in order to, for, the, for them to get their way. Um, and that has worked against us in the context of Tikkun Olam. And so we all can understand the complexity of the, uh, of the situation right now. Okay, so, they, so the Gemara has asked, uh, I've got, so that's the Mishnah. The Gemara has given two possible reason, re, reasons for this, for, 
for why we shouldn't pay too much for captives either because it will impoverish us and we won't be able to, we'll be privileging the needs of a few individuals over the needs of the community as a whole, or perhaps it actually creates a negative, um, a negative uh, economic incentive that will drive up the price and and cause more people to be taken in in the in the future. And we're worrying about the future rather than right now. So that's the question the Gemara asked, and now the Gemara tries to answer the question. It says, Tashma, come and let's figure it out. Wait, there was this case of Levi Bendargo who ransomed his daughter for 13,000 dinari of gold. Okay, that's a lot of money. If you say we don't, we would, um, it's uh, something, it's many, many more. It's much more than anyone would, most people would see in their regular, in their entire lifetime. And he paid this exorbitant price for his daughter. Therefore, says, um, and we're supposed to understand that this is a proof text. This seems to imply, as Rashi explains, it must be because we don't want to impoverish the community. Because it, it's okay, Levi Bindarka didn't care about 13,000 dinari. He was willing to pay whatever price it was for his daughter because it's his daughter. Uh, and he and his law, and he's permitted to pay his own money because it didn't cost anybody else anything, right? It's not off the national budget. It's off of his particular budget. So it's no problem. It's okay. Uh, and this seems to prove that the real reason why we don't pay too much for captives is because of uh, the budgetary impact and not because of future concerns for the economy. That's the assertion of the Gemara here. And Abaye rejects that. He says, wait a minute, are you sure he acted with the consent of the sages? Perhaps he, act, perhaps he perhaps the government would have never agreed to it. Perhaps the, the sages disagreed with it. And he did it anyway, because he wanted his daughter back. And it wasn't good for the world. And it was against Halacha, but he did what he wanted to do. For He did it because he wanted to save his daughter. So the Gemara leaves it uh, leaves this issue unresolved, but has brought in this precedent, which is important to us, this precedent, which we'll come back to again and again, uh, that that uh, we not you're not supposed to pay you're not supposed to pay an excessive price for captives on the one hand. And on the other hand, if you uh, um, perhaps if you have the money and it's coming out of your purse and not out of the communal purse, Perhaps you're allowed to do it, um, and the Gemara hasn't come to a decision. But the Rambam comes to a decision. Uh, seven hundred years later, the Ra or six, six seven hundred years later, the Rambam uh, in the twelfth century summarizes the law uh, for us, and he says you cannot redeem the captives for more than the value for the sake of tikkun olam so that the enemy uh, should not pursue after them in order to take them captive. It's not just because of the communal, it's not because of the, he's essentially t accepting the 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 proof, uh, the example of the precedent of Levi Bindarga and suggesting it's okay to redeem if it's just, uh, I'm sorry, no, he's, wow, I just totally misspoke. Can you cut that out in the recording? The, <laughs> the, uh, that, uh, <laughs> the, uh, that he, 
rejects, he agree, he accepts Abaye's complaint. This was surely not with the agreement of, with the consent of the sages. You can't pay too much for any one individual because that will create a market for taking captives. And then you'll end up with a Yechiyah Sinwar. And you don't want to end up with a Yechiyah Sinwar. Um, and you don't want to end up with the 7th of October. Therefore, do not pay too much for your captives. That's the Psak of the Rambam. And indeed, uh, there was a, just a hundred years later, um, Rabbi Meir of Rothenburg in, in Germany in the 13th century found himself, and he was really the great stage of his generation, uh, was taken captive by the non-Jewish, by the non-Jewish government, and the government was ransoming him. And because of who he was, the Jewish community was able to collect the money and they were ready to redeem him and they wanted to redeem him because he was such an important figure in their community. They were willing to pay a very high price. And he said, oh, no, you don't. No way. Don't you even think about doing it. Um, he did not agree to be redeemed. And he chose to die in prison because he understood that once you go down this road, it would... Um, it could end up creating, a, it could create, it could have tragic consequences. He said the enemy, as a result, the enemy was going to also capture the Roche, who was another great figure, luminary of his time, um, his pupil. And luckily the Roche was able to escape to Toledo and was saved. But there was this fear, Rebbe Mayer said, oh my gosh, I do not want, I, I'm not willing to take that chance that you'll redeem me and then they'll They'll resort to this as a way to pad their budget all the time. Therefore, it's best for, even though you need me because I'm a great luminary of your time, it's better for you to leave without me um, and lose some of the wisdom from the generation, from the people, rather than losing all, all of the wisdom or so much more that would be lost if the, if the non-Jews would understand this technique of taking stages captive and... Uh, and holding them ransom until the Jewish people were totally impoverished. Uh, so there has been, uh, and and the Yamshel Shlomo, the, the commentary here says, and it was a good idea, like what he did was so uh, powerful that from then on the matter ceased and the persecution of people stopped using that mechanism uh, of persecuting, capturing sages in the exile and let off because it doesn't work. So if it doesn't work, there's no incentive to do it. Um, and, uh, um, I, it's so powerful and I like to say, uh, uh, Rebbe Mayer of Rothenberg, his example is very inspiring. His willingness to give of his own life, um, is inspiring. And I want, uh, and he said it about himself, not about his child, right? And I want to say, like, uh, I think it's important to, identify this sense of his his humility, his long-term interest for the Jewish people and the way he was being strict with himself, but not with other people. So there's one important precedent and we understand the halacha, which just makes perfect sense that you shouldn't, um, that you shouldn't redeem captives for more than they're worth because it gets us into the situation that we're in right now. Um, and that's one direction. And now I want to the other direction and I just like this source of the source number six on my source sheet the Radbaz um, who Rav David Ben Zimra 
who lived from 1479 to 1573 and was born in um he was born in Spain and then he fled himself in the during the Inquisition to he lived most of his life in Fez um and in Egypt and he was, died in Sfat um so he's a North African scholar really in his essence um with the chief rabbi of Cairo so he because he was in Egypt he dealt a lot with captives um and and in fact, some of his most interesting, the whole, all of our literature about the Ethiopian Jewish community also came from the Radbaz, who, again, because of the reasons of being caught in between uh, wars and that there were wars going on in Africa at the time, and they would bring the slaves towards the north. And, uh, e and the Ethiopian Jewish community was discovered to the Radbaz through the cat, through exactly this issue. Um, and so some of our most interesting literature about the Ethiopian Jewish community is also about this, uh, about the redeeming of captives. Uh, but the, um, but in this case, we're not talking about the Ethiopian Jewish community at all. Just, he's just testifying to what he witnessed, uh, in Cairo, which is Kfar Nahagu Kol Yisrael, we see, if you look left and right, you'll see that everywhere, all of the Jews are always redeeming their custom, their their captives for much more than they're worth. Nobody is following this halacha. The halacha is clear. The Rambam has said it. The Shulchan Aruch has said it. The uh, uh, the Mishnah said it first, um, but nobody's following it. That's what the Rambam says. He's looking around and he sees nobody's doing it, and he says, "Hinachlem Yisrael." You gotta let, you gotta leave it to the Jews. Just, he throws up his shoulders and he says, there's really nothing you can do. You've got to leave the Jewish people be who they are. They can't help themselves because the Jewish people are people who do acts of kindness and they're from a long line of doers of kindness. That is what their character is. They can't help themselves. They need to be doing kindness. Um, Dayenu, I think like that like, brings me back to the to the first to the opening source, right? Yevamot, the 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 pithy quote I began with that there's three things that characterize the Jewish people: um, the uh, that we are that we're rachmanim, we're merciful; that we're bishanim, that we're humble, and that we are gomlei chasidim, that we do acts of kindness, and that kindness is so deep in our core that we can't help ourselves. Um, and I, I, and Diana, we could stop there. And now I'm going to spend the rest of the time to, to nuance that and to understand how do we hold all of these things and where do we go and why don't we keep the halacha? Um, so let me summarize what I've said so far is that on the one hand, we've placed the, redem the, the redemption of captives at the very top of our hierarchy of mitzvahs. It's so important of the things we do, um, of the mitzvahs we can do. Uh, it's all, it's everything. And then we've actually come and said, but don't do it. Only do it at a reasonable price. Uh, and, and we actually saw that Rebbe Mayer of Rotenberg did that for himself, died in captivity rather than be redeemed, uh, either because he didn't want to impoverish the Jewish people and also because he didn't want to create the incentive. Um, and that's the halacha. 
And yet we see that the Jewish people for years have been floating the halacha, have been flouting the halacha because they can't help themselves because they are gomlei chesed, b'nei gomlei chesed. Um, so that's the summary up till now. And let me just uh, move from there to sort of think again. I want to think again because, you know, you what what's going on in the modern state of Israel and why it's different than let's take the United States or the United Kingdom, where those are countries that have very logical policies that they more or less stick to, which is they do not negotiate with terrorists. And they leave people in captivity. Um, and, and we rem- and you probably remember from ISIS, uh, or maybe you remember, depending on your age, you remember in the days of the, uh, of ISIS's activity that me- we saw many journalists who had p- people that had been taken captive and ISIS really blew it up in the, in the biggest way possible to, with these very brutal killings, um, because the United States and the United Kingdom were not willing to, uh, to redeem their captives. Uh, and eventually, you know, uh, look, without, there's a logic to that policy and we understand the logic of that policy. And now the question is, what the heck is going on in our country? Um, so I want to share a story. Uh, the, uh, Begbie said uh, his mother is Gula Cohen. She, uh, she, she was Gula Cohen. Uh, she was a right-wing hardliner. And uh, when Sahid Negbi, who also now is still a, an actively Kudnik, um, when he when um, when he was a young paratrooper, well before he made it big in politics, and he's made it quite big in politics, um, and he was serving in what's what was called in the Lebanon War, um, the first Lebanon War, his mother, for, uh, former M.K. Gula Cohen, was asked what she would do if her son were taken prisoner. And she said, as a mother, I'd be standing outside the prime minister's office with a megaphone and I'd be 24 hours a day calling on the government to do anything that could possibly be done to, re- to obtain his release. And as a connected member, she said, I'd be, I would sit inside the prime minister's office and tell him not to listen to the people outside. Um, she, that, that there was this understanding of the conflict between the mother, who's of course is standing outside saying, you must, must redeem my child, and the, and the government member who's inside saying, don't listen to them, don't listen to them. And you see that sort of manifest itself already in the halakha when we sort of find the leniencies um, is that, uh, you know, the rabbis, the rabbis think about halakha in the abstract and they also relate to halakha as a, as a lived reality. They, there's a, they have a general principle that or even if we're not prophets, you have to go out and see what the Jewish people are doing because they have a gut intuition Either if they're either they're prophets or they're the children of prophets, but we have an internal sense from our internal telemelochim of what is right, and and it's up to the rabbis also to understand what is right, to understand what our moral intuition is, and to under and to justify it halachically. So one of the ways they they um, they begin to make leniencies on this absolute principle: don't redeem captives. Um, is uh, when they talk about 
it's for seven, I will just talk about them generally without going into them, but all of this is lined up in the source sheet for you, that uh, when there's moral danger involved, we redeem captives. It, and they, here you can see this is our situation now. When, 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 you, when time is of the essence and any day things could go wrong, then we get a little bit more lenient. And then we allow you to pay more because it's life or death. Um, it's not just a theoretical thing. It's actually, it's, it's so what, so one source of leniency is when you really feel like time is of the essence and you can't wait, then there's permission to pay a little bit more. And similarly, um, the question comes up uh, first in the Tosafot, right? We saw the case of Levi Bindarga, who was, who redeemed his daughter at a high price. And the, and the toast vote to justify that everyone can pay for everyone will give everything they've got to save their own soul. And no one should get in the way and say that you can't save yourself with all of your money. Only when get, we had, you know, when you when you're given the, soul, the choice, your money or your life. The Jewish commandment is to give your money and forget about your life, I mean, to give your to give your to save your life and forget about your money. It's just money. Um, and we expect that of everyone to do that for themselves. And we would never get in the way of that anyone doing that for themselves. And similarly, that's true about your daughter and your family members and your and your wife. Um, so in though there's leniencies for taking care of yourself and your family. Um, that that's an essential thing and we allow it. Uh, and that is codified in the in the Shulchan Aruch um, in the 16th century uh, that the individuals are allowed to do that. And they even make a case also for a great scholar, someone who is uniquely important to their community uh, or someone who has the potential to be uniquely powerful to their community. They can be redeemed at higher than higher than their normal price. Um, The, uh, the the next source on my source sheet is really an articulation of all of these sources were written before we had a state. And we were talking about individuals and communities and, and what the what are the what are the decisions that we're making for ourselves as a community. But in uh, once we founded the state of Israel. One example of such a person uh, who took this position, Rav Yehuda Gershoni, um, said, wait a minute, but now we're a state. We can't do that anymore. We have to take care. We have to consider the needs of the entire state and we can't redeem captives. There's no there's no making negotiations. And that was his demand that and he wasn't alone, that we shouldn't uh, we should not make these negotiations. And we saw that the far right end of the government uh also now with this current deal uh, was it opposed the the previous the previous deal that we just had uh, that was from this position that now that we're a nation like all the other nations we should be as brutal as all of the other nations and we should be um, Gaula Cohen sitting outside I mean sitting inside and not listening to the people outside we can't let our country be run by a few mothers um, standing outside with megaphones uh, so that position is out there. And it really is out there, uh, and and we can understand the logic of it. That's the logic of America, and that's the logic of the United Kingdom. Um, but I think that in our situation, and this is how we've gotten our, 
ourselves into this situation is that we're not like the United States and we're not like the United Kingdom. We are more like the Kuzari says. We're like a big, um, we're like a, uh, every individual in the context of the community is like a limb of the larger of the larger community and cutting off you very careful before you cut off your arm um that you don't give away your arm with great ease because they're an individual it's very we feel such an amount of solidarity with each other and this is especially true with respect to soldiers so um there's a few sources here but i'll just focus on Rav Shaul Yisraeli, who really invented the idea, was in the first generation, both Rav Goren and Rav Shaul Yisraeli, remember that we never had a state before. And so when we had, once this became a reality uh, in the early years of the state, we suddenly had to identify Jewish sources that would help us uh, to meet a whole new set of questions that became a uh, reality for us. And Rav Shuli Yisraeli and Rav Shlomo Goran, both of them were key figures in thinking about what they called Mishpat Ivri, um, uh, Jewish law for the state, um, and especially for war. Uh, the, these were perhaps the two most central figures. And Rav Shuli Yisraeli takes the model of insurance. Imagine a a, uh, since we've established that you can redeem yourself for however much money you want to redeem yourself, and you will redeem yourself for as much as you, as you can. So then obviously you can also take out an insurance policy with the company uh, th to pay that they'll pay whatever, you know, you pay them every month, five, $5, uh, 500 shekels a year, and they promise to redeem you for whatever the cost is. Uh, and that, and the insurance company isn't doing anything wrong because they've they've made this contract. And he says, we have to think about ourselves that way. The Israeli army needs to think of themselves as an insurance policy for one another. We are all for one and one for all. And our soldiers have gone out to fight. They are as an extension, they're shlichim of the state. And they are implicitly... Um, we have de we demand we have an expectation that when we redeem them we're redeeming ourselves and they go out knowing that and that um people go on to say also of Chaim David Halevi also one of the early um very important scholars establishing halacha and says and what about the morale of the soldiers um Part of what may, gives us morale is this all for one and one for all mentality, and we can't we can't relate in that way um, to our to, to the way the way other countries relate. We have to relate to each other as siblings who treat each other with the utmost care because that's what we are. Um, and I didn't put this on the source sheet, but I I didn't find an authority who said that, but I've seen very much right now. That's true of soldiers that we have to we have special responsibility for the soldiers who are going out for us and get taken captive as soldiers. Therefore, we have to extend ourselves even more for them. Um, but for this particular crisis, many people have said, and, they, and it resonates so deeply with me, uh, that we have a special responsibility to these to these hundred captives who, um, this is the worst day, October 7th was the worst day for the Jewish people since the Shoah, since the Holocaust. And it happened because the state blew it. There was really no excuse for 
they, they, it was their job to take care of us. And you just think about what happens when you, let's say you borrow, you, when, when you are responsible for the mess up, you are responsible for the cleanup. And many people have said in this situation, we can't really just think about it as, as people who found themselves messed up and we have an obligation to save them. Yes. People who mess up, we have an obligation to save them. But here, we're the ones that messed up. We're the ones that got them into this situation. And therefore, we have a special obligation to take care of them. Uh, and and therefore, we need to pay a higher price. And so we understand that it's totally unintuitive what makes sense. And what the halakha dictates is that we should be a lot more like the United States. And we should be a lot more like the United Kingdom. And we shouldn't negotiate with terrorists. But we, but the nature of the Jewish people is that we're not a regular state. We are a family of brothers, of siblings who love each other. And that when we see one of us being taken captive, it's as if all of us have been being taken captive. And we are a citizen army. What that person who everyone and, and I mean, I couldn't feel this morning. See also among the people that are listening here that there are other mothers of soldiers here that we're when every person that's taken captive, every person that falls in battle could just as easily have been my child and could just as easily have been your child. And therefore, we feel a depth of solidarity an understanding that we have to let blood, right? As the, as the Kuzari says, we have to endure the hardship to save that hand because those soldiers, every one of those soldiers is like a finger on our body and we need them. And so we can't, we can't be expected to act rationally because we, Israel, they are, we can't help ourselves. We are people uh, that act um, from kindness at every moment. Um, and we are people that are aware of our level of solidarity at every moment. And so it's definitional. The way we behave here is not just about logic and it's not just about budget. It's about defining who we are as a Jewish people. And, and we can, we can feel the complexity of the situation. I understand the complexity of the situation. There, there is there's so much good reason not to negotiate with uh, the terrorists and not to engage in this exchange, which these exchanges got us into the situation in the first place. And yet at the same time, if we choose not to redeem these hostages, we're making a choice about ourselves to be like all the other nations. And the question is, do we really want to be like all the other nations or do we want to stay a family? Um, and I find this to be very hard. Um, so with that being said, I'd like to, uh, again, pray. I think a class like this is one that, that really is not just about the mind, but about the heart. And I know, um, that you all join me in prayer. So I'm going to, uh, with your permission, uh, say a prayer for the captives and for the soldiers, um, that everyone and and for peace. I'm going to say two prayers. One prayer uh, for the captives and to protect the soldiers who are at war, and another for the prayer, the prayer for peace. Misha Berach Avoteno Abraham Yitzchak Yaakov Moshe Aron Zavirush Lomo Uivarech Vishmor Vyatzil Beneno Hayikarim 
חיילי צבא ההגנה לישראל ושאר לוחמים למען ביטחון בעם וארץ. והאזרחים, זקנים וצעירים, נשים, גברים וטף הנמצאים בצער ובמצוקה נתונים משיסה על סכנה ושבי. הקדוש ברוך הוא ימלא רחמים עליהם וקיימן לחזקם לחיות ולחם ותקוותם להציל ממסגר נפשם להוציאם מצרה לרווחה משיעור בגאולה. ולפצועים שבהם ישלח אדוני רפואה שלמה מן השמיים, רפואת הנפש ורפואת הגוף. יזכו כולם לשוב במהרה לביתם ולארצם בריאים ושלמים וחיים ושלום ויקוים בהם דברי הכתוב לחבוש לנשברי לב ולקרוא לשבועים שלו ונאמרים. God, God of our ancestors, um, please, please protect our precious children and please protect our citizens, old and young women and children who are in trouble and distress. Bring them out of captivity. Heal them. Heal all of the captives. Let us pray not just for the Jewish people, but for peace for everyone, that no one should be suffering unnecessarily. This is the prayer of Rabbi Nachman um, of Ratzlav, for peace. רק יכירו וידעו כל יושבי תבל האמת לאמיתה, אשר לא באנו לזה העולם בשביל ריב ומחלוקת חס ושלום, ולא בשביל שנאה וקנאה וקנטור ושפיכות דמים חס ושלום. רק באנו לעולם כדי להכיר ולדעת אותך תברך לנצח, ויקוים מקרא שכתוב, ונתתי שלום בארץ ושכבתם ואימה חרית, והשבעתי חיה רעה מן הארץ, וחרב לא תעבור בארצכם ונאמר, אמן. God, God, we did not come to this world for this purpose. This is not who we want to be. We do not want to be bickering and hurting one another. We want to be living in peace and recognizing your existence in the world. God, please get us to that place time speedily in the day. Amen. Thank you all for learning with me and for praying with me. And I encourage you all, there's links on this source sheet um, to wear a number. Um, in solidarity with the Goldberg family um, and to find some time on the, on the 100th day of captivity uh, to, uh, to be with all of, the, all of the captive families. May they be redeemed quickly, speedily, and may we know better times very quickly. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rabbi. It, it was just an honor and a pleasure. We have some, some questions that have um, arisen uh, both on the chat. I see Isaac has risen his hand. Isaac, go ahead. Um, I was wondering what you think will change in the government now that we have seen such atrocities with captives being taken. What will change the government? Uh, yeah. Oh, if I knew how to change the government, I would have done it long ago. Um, <laughs> sorry to be so political. Um, But I do think that uh, that we are going to be changing the government soon and that those calls are already coming. Um, and thank God, I think this is an issue that everybody. Well, look, not everybody's united in it. The, the complexity of what price to pay for the captives is a complex one. And I'm so glad myself that I'm not the one sitting in the government and deciding when's the right minute. This is not something I'd be excited to do. Um, but uh, but I do think that our country is coming together around 
changing the government. And many members of the government, certainly of the military, have already taken responsibility. Uh, I'm not speaking about Netanyahu, of course, but other members who have taken responsibility and uh, will be stepping down immediately afterwards. Thank you. Is there another question? There is, Rabbi. Um, From from the live stream, we, we have another question. Um, do you expect to see more highly religious communities become proactively active within the IDF after seeing the horrors of the hostages? Um, oh, goodness. Um, the world is changing. And I think that there's a lot of uh, Rev. Sherlow, who I... For, for whom I have tremendous respect as one of the greats of our generation has said, everybody see, of course, we're reading this world, this crisis through the lenses that we read, that we read the world. Um, so for some people, that means uh, that they are less optimistic than ever about peace. Um, from where I'm sitting, it seems to me that uh that the only solution is to cut, that we can see that a military solution is not going to solve this problem and we have to figure out how we're going to get to a non-military solution. Um, so there is no question that the that the winds are shifting and that all of us are rethinking. I've been asking at my Shabbos table, how does this make you, how has this crisis made you different? Um, and I think that if we're not asking this, that question, then there's something really wrong with us, um, but we have to do it complexly. Um, so I, I'm not a prophetess. Maybe I'm a the child of a prophet, <laughs> but uh, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much, Rabbi Mish. And finally, uh, on a personal question for me, how do we start to change the narrative? Because I feel like there has just been an overwhelmingly drowning of not having enough sympathy for a lot of the hostages they're having. I feel like there has been a co-optive narrative to push away from having uh, the ability to have sympathy for um, the hostages. Wow. You're the one that lives in America, huh? The, yeah. <laughs> from where from where we're sitting, it looks the other way. Um, so, so I'm uh, that... Um, I, I do think it's very difficult to, uh, uh, I probably should have cited Nicholas Kristoff. Nicholas Kristoff, you know, his Save the Darfur Puppy. Um, he went this a very, of course, obviously a very old editorial, but it's easier, it's easier for us to save one puppy than it is for us to look at a massive crisis. Um, and I think for us to be able to bring home a single story, and that's part of perhaps why Rachel would become such, Rachel Gold, has become such a uh, luminary for us in these days is because she brought her one story um, and helped us to, to see with compassion. And uh, I think that that is a good way for us to try to, to, to feel compassion uh, in a way that it's harder for us to feel compassion for the many people who, so many people who are dying. Uh, Amen. Thank you so much, Rabbi Mish, always uh, bringing in such powerful Torah, such compassion. And I I, I was honestly tearing up um, the majority of the class. Um, so many of us are affected. Uh, when it really hit me when you said with, when one of us is taken, all of us are taken. And I, I, I really deeply feel that. 
I appreciate you for your time today and wish you plenty of blessings um, going forth. Thank you so much to all of you for listening. And again, the source sheets have um, links that you can click uh, with and interact with, with those of you who um, will be going through those later on in the recordings. Thank you so much, Rabbi Nijin. Thank you so much, eh? and everybody. Thank you all for coming. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.